0: Welcome to Book Shambles. You're listening to an abridged version of this episode. You can listen to the full uncut edition of this episode if you become a Patreon supporter of the show. And that's for as little as $1 a month via Patreon. And uh, you can support us. So just go to patreon.com forward slash... I still say forward slash. I'm I'm nearly 51, thank you. Uh, Forward slash Book Shambles for more info and how to pledge.
1: Hello and welcome to Book Shambles. Producer Trent here. Let me start by giving thanks to all our Patreon supporters as always. Remember, Patreon supporters get extended episodes each and every week. And not only that, you'll get access to lots of exclusive Patreon bonus series we do, like An Uncanny Hour. Series two of that has just begun. The first episode is part of a two-parter on John Carpenter's Apocalypse Trilogy. The first episode looks at The Thing and features Stuart Lee and Alan Moore and Rhys Shearsmith and Sarah Morgan and Susie Gage and lots of others. And also, starting on February 24th, we've just announced officially our new series called Tips for Existence, which is all about how different scientists and artists and authors find their version of meaning in a universe without meaning. So the first episode of that is out on February 24th. Our guest is Professor Brian Green. And coming up later in the series is Neil Gaiman and Tim Minchin and Chris Jackson and Anne and astronaut Nicole Stott and lots of other people. So you can go to the Cosmic Shambles website to find out all about that. That's all of my admin. Here's a little bit more from Josie before we get to this week's episode with the brilliant Irish novelist and short story writer Kevin Barry.
2: Hello! Uh, Book Shambles is about to begin. I'm Josie Long and uh, in a minute you're going to hear Robin Ince. Um, I really hope you enjoy today's episode. We got to interview Kevin Barry, who is one of my all-time favourite short story writers. I love his short stories. He's got three collections. This is about his third collection coming out. Um, I'd also like to say, if you uh, are a Patreon subscriber, thank you so much. (laughs) We really, really appreciate it in uh, in these troubled times. And if you're not and you would consider becoming one, that would mean a lot to us. Um, But don't worry if it's not something that you're up for or that you think is available at the minute. Don't worry about it. Here we are. Let's have our lovely show. I hope you're all well. Now let's proceed.
0: Um, the uh, Hello, welcome to Josie Robbins' book, Shambles, and uh, we'll just get straight on with it today um, because uh, we have a, a fantastic, uh, frequently nominated, award-winning uh, author and uh, a writer of, well, the latest book are uh, just really fascinating short stories, and I know that, Josie, this is one of those episodes where I can see by the, the glint in your eye that you have so many questions. We're joined by uh, Kevin Barry. Hello, Kevin. Hello. How's it going, Robin and Josie? How are you doing?
2: thank you. It's Good. lovely to meet
3: you. It's a great um, see you both here then, here in this strange time.
2: Yeah.
0: When <laughs> well, we do
3: the now traditional, what can you see beyond your computer thing?
0: Oh, no one ever asked. That's, me that. that's the now
3: traditional Zoom thing. What do you see outside your nearest window? Isn't it? That's what I get a lot of. Yeah. Oh, wow. I'm, oh I'm, I'm. I'm looking at a swamp. Are so I'm you looking ca- at a swamp? And can you turn it round? It is an actual swamp. I can turn it. Are you
2: are on a desktop?
3: It, it, it will go towards. Oh like wow. stuff. Out oh there. wow! Yeah. No Thanks, people. That's much
0: appreciated.
3: So no coronavirus, obviously. Um, so everything, everything is wonderful. Yeah.
0: See, that's what because you, you, you were talking about. You know, being very near the Atlantic, so you would, you know, at, at one point, this would have all been glued together with with America as well. You know, that would have the jigsaw puzzle of Pangea. Appalachia. We're,
3: we are actually. at, <laughs> yeah. This would have been Appalachia. Yeah, there would have been a raging opioid crisis.
2: at the risk Um, of sounding like too much of a reach when i was reading your book i felt that there was a sensibility to some sort of american countryside
3: oh completely i mean i mean are, are we aware of the genre terrifying genre known as country and irish music
2: no but I love the sound is, of it
3: This this is a YouTube hole You want to fall down um, Country and Irish, it's been going about 40 years It's it's astonishing It is country and western with an Irish flavour um, oh. It's really spectacularly uh, Lacrimose And kind of sentimental and morbid Lots of songs about dead dogs And dead mothers and dead wives And dead brothers um, There's a guy called Big Tom Since deceased himself, went the road oh. Uh, but man. he's 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 he's, uh, he's he's the he's still probably our, our Johnny Cash. But yeah, it's it's weird like that whole American sort of country music thing. A lot of it came, of course, out of Irish and Scottish music going to the south and then subsequently into the west. And so many kind of things about like outlaw culture in in, mm-hmm. in U.S. mythology and sort of um, things like that. Uh, they came they came from over here originally. Um, oh, wow. So so there's lots of traces. Yeah,
2: two of the stories are about
3: outlaw figures as well. Yeah, for sure. Um, like there, there's often I write what I consider kind of my own little kind of West of Ireland Westerns, you know, um, there's a story in the new book called Ox and Death Song, which essentially has a sheriff and outlaw and it even has a ripe widow. I'm absolutely shameless, you know. Laying <laughs> it, it on with a fucking shovel. Here we go, there's a ripe widow as well for you. So yeah, it, it, it's definitely there. Um, I think Irish writing definitely looks kind of that way towards, towards. Well, American you don't Rock. want to look the other way. I will tell you that for free. No, only Beckett went once. once, once you know. <laughs> but
0: Snippy that still enough. fits, though. I can still see. I can see. You know, Beckett and Alan Ladd working together on a kind of Shane sequel, just just set on him dying on the horse. I can see that happening. Western,
3: Western without, not not much happening in this. Yeah,
0: <laughs> is, is <laughs> he still dead on a horse? He's still dead on a horse, but uh, he's also continuing to move forward. He, uh, he for did no love. He did he, he
3: did. he did love silent movies. He did love Buster Keaton and stuff like that and made a film with Buster Keaton mm. in, in the 60s, uh, Beckett. Uh wow. and His one trip to the US, he went over to make a film with Buster Keaton.
2: What was the film? It's called I, Film. I, I
3: think in that Beckettian yeah. way, I think it's called Film. yeah i did i did a
0: screening at the slapstick festival three years ago because they did a re-release with all of the extra stuff there's a load of other bits and pieces is it any good i've never actually seen it's a very it's a really great kind of i would say almost german expressionistic uh man running from self uh where his identity and all that it's but of course the great thing is he got to meet his hero and buster keaton did not care Buster Keaton had no No, interest in, he liked watching sport and he liked drinking beer. And so, you know, Buster Keaton goes and we've talked about this before about those, you know, those moments where sometimes you meet someone you've admired hugely. Mm. And fortunately, it happened very rarely, I I think, for either of us. But you go, oh, wow, the disparity between what I presume they were and what they are is wider than I had hoped.
3: Yeah, I, I I was reading um over the last few years, they've published Beckett's letters, three three big fat volumes of them, and I, I was reading his letters from the US from that trip when he went over and met Buster Keaton, and he just whinges for like, <laughs> he's there for three weeks and he just whinges and grizzles. Like his misery is really a kind of shtick, I think, you know, a lot of it, like apparently he was great fun to go on the piss with Beckett, he was a laugh a minute man you know, (laughs) when he was out, when he was out drinking, but then like the whole sort of, oh, endless kind of melancholy and, and, searching for identity and truth and all that was kind of a shtick in, in, in some ways. Not that he wasn't a, a miserable old bastard, I'm sure, a lot of the time as well.
0: But I've heard that as well, you know, that the thing was, he'd, he'd go, let's go for a drink, but just don't ask me about the work. I don't want to talk about my work. But let's watch, let's watch thing. some tennis and let's have some beers in a nice Paris yeah. cafe. And I wonder yeah. how much he's That's getting... why
2: Buster Keaton would be a good pal for him, because he's not going to be there going... It's like the Fraser episode where the dad, where Marty really gets on with Fraser's favourite writer. Because oh, Marty's yeah. just like, he's just a cool guy. We have
3: a bit. He's a sporty I, I... guy. I remember that episode. Yeah. yeah. Sorry, I'm obsessed
2: with Fraser at the moment. So I feel like I, I, I've, been re-watching. I've been re watching.
3: I've been re watching, actually, because re watching everything. Yeah, there's nothing else to do. And, and yeah, it's it stands up, doesn't it? It's really fun. It's really, really, really great writing. Like the the the, the one liners, Niles, especially. Yes. The, the great character. Not, do you know
2: what? I, I was thinking about how lockdown reminded me of a story in, I might be your first collection, about the couple who just are sort of gently sliding into alcoholism watching box sets every night.
3: <laughs> yeah, it's called Wifey Redox. She's obsessed with um, Omar in The Wire. Yeah, yeah. She, so She starts to cry out his name in her sleep all, all the
2: time i feel like it's just it's not fiction anymore it's just
3: <laughs> <No>. real life <laughs> it, it's strange isn't it how they had the, almost everyone you talked at the minute is watching the sopranos mm. um, everybody has gone through the entire history of television at home and decided well actually yeah the sopranos is the best thing you know there, there is nothing <laughs> really that that competes with, with the sopranos at its best i've, and...
2: I've been wearing my uh boyfriend's um Uh, dressing gown so I can pretend that I'm on house arrest instead of under lockdown (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
3: livens it off (laughs) <laughs> yeah. put, put, a, put a thing around your ankle you know kind of a
2: <laughs>
0: but I do a think Sopranos Bransman. is the end of telly for me it, it basically when that finished when I finished watching that and I was lucky I, it dragged out for a long time mm. uh, due to a couple of burglaries in my house where the box sets were stolen so I saw the, saw the lucky side it meant that I had the Sopranos for far longer than other people did waiting for to get them back and it was uh and it, it was when when I watched the final episode, I was like, I I, I don't really see the point. You know, I tried Breaking Bad, no, and I know like Breaking Bad's great and everything, but like The it. Sopranos was such a work.
3: Yeah, it's Shakespeare-like, isn't it? You know, it's just it's just on top of it. And there's been good stuff so I I do think that much vaunted uh, kind of golden age of television is 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 finite and in the past now. I think I think the very best stuff has been made. Things like Deadwood. Probably wouldn't be made now because because of the the language and the kind of and the profanity and, um, and all. Oh, like that's
2: that. interesting. One
3: that's one interesting. of one of the best one of the best things I've read actually in the last while I, I found it. Oh, it's been in the house for years. I, I picked it up in a, in a second shop. It was a book of interviews with Dennis Potter. Jeez, um, oh, he's the crankiest. He, well, he was the crankiest old bastard alive. He uh, he, he loved of, lot of, lot of illness and and. Difficulties in his life, but you know, really, really fascinating on story and storytelling, and on character and dialogue and everything. You know, um, and that, again, that's the kind of work that that's not
0: going to likely come again. I think. That's a really, I would I recommend actually know. a book. I'll just mention a couple of books as we book, but The the Art yeah, of the Invective. Should. I don't know if that was the book you might have read, which was The Art of the Invective has some interviews and all of his TV criticism, which right. is really good. And then there's Seeing the Blossom, which has the, um, the Melvin Bragg interview, the last interview he ever did. Wow. But you're right. No, his...
3: This one is called simply Potter on Potter. Basically. Oh, that
0: great, Faber and Faber one. Fable yeah, Fable Graham, one. Graham yeah. Fuller, yeah. Yes. Yeah. But oh, it is Robin, a, I love
2: that you're like, well, it could be this one, this one, or this oh, one. Oh, no, I really like Humphrey Carpenter's,
0: yeah. yeah. No, Dennis Potter was, but, I mean, I think for my generation, you're probably the same age as me approximately. I,
3: I'm precisely the same age. I'm 51 as well.
0: Great, yeah. that's it. And and mm. I think when you first saw your Dennis Potter, it was like, and I oh, yeah. think I was the lucky. one. The one, I,
3: the one I remember always really kind of knocking me to the floor, and I must have been very young seeing it, was uh, Blue Remember Tales, mm. um, which was about 76 or 77 or something, so I must have been like seven or eight. Um, that's the one uh, where where like the kids uh, play, play adults. And it's, I know adults play kids. Play kids. Uh, and it's, it's just, it's just, I still remember it. Was it Michael, Michael Gambon was in it, was one of them. again like, Colin know, actually,
0: Welland's in it. Yeah. Colin Welland in shorts, which is great. You know, that's yeah. That's the thing. They're all dressed as, as, as mm-hmm. kids just going around, whee, yeah. just being planes and stuff like that. And it is, uh, you're right that in terms of his fury, Because when I watch The Singing Detective again, and and that it has got, you know, the lead character is someone in agony with psoriasis. Yeah. And you just, you watch it and you think, oh my God, he would have been the worst patient because the way that he's, the the way that character is written and the agony Mm. that he's in and the hatred of humanity because of the pain and the kind of deformation of his, of his, it's, yeah, it's an interesting. Do
3: do, do, do we know that psoriasis is a very common uh, writerly affliction? Common, common, many writers. Yeah, Updike, John Updike suffered very. John Updike's was so bad. He he used to have. He reported once that he used to have to hoover out the bed <laughs> in the morning, yeah. uh, that he would lose so much skin. Um, and it's strange. I I I don't know what it is, but are you often reading kind of autobiographies, you come you come across uh, skin complaints. Um, and well, I think if
2: there's aspiring writers listening who suffer from psoriasis yeah, yeah, that they can away. see that as a badge stay, of honour. <laughs> That's a badge of honour. It means you're, you've you been but called I, to become a writer. I
3: actually, I finished, I mentioned that novel, City of Bohan, and I remember when I finished that, I, I wrote it quite quickly inside a year. And when I finished it, I was really fucking wrecked, like really tired. And I came out in a mystery ride, all down my kind of arms and, and, and chest and stuff. And I, I went to the GP, who was kind of used to me. She knows me; she knew me well. Knows, knows I'm quite neurotic and, yeah. and kind of hypochondriacal and all this. And she said, "Like, we, what, what have you been up to?" She said, "Like, we, were you, you weren't doing exams or something like that, were you, or you're studying or something." And it was purely a kind of a pulse stress kind wow. of thing. And I, I, I kind of get it after every book now, for a week or two, I come out in a rash because you're kind of, you know, in, in the very last stretch of the book, you're kind of really kind of. Uh, you're kind of uh, living and breathing and sleeping it and it's kind of all, all systems go. For the last few weeks anyway, I tried to try to get it out of the house. Um that's Yeah. So but then, if you ever have skin a... complaints, we've got to very quickly. <laughs> yeah, I'm complain. into it. But if you ever write a book now
2: and you don't get a rash, should we think I'd be I didn't <laughs>
0: Seriously, I've <my laughs> got oh, I'm Constance, You know. <laughs> oh, thank <laughs> heavens, I've got a goiter. It's, it's it's coming out in a new way. <laughs> yeah. What a relief! Do you the, know uh...
2: <laughs> when I think of Dennis Potter, I think it's the one time when I think, oh gosh, I really really wish I could have been an adult in the '70s when there were complicated plays on television. But the whole thing, again. like
3: the um, that the that whole like the play of the week stuff, there'd be like sixty million viewers and stuff, you yeah. know, and everyone, and like two channels, so everyone one would see it pretty much, you know. Um, mm. there was what was I reading? Um, Jonathan Rabin, You ever read him? He's kind of travel writer. it's is is very broad way describing him, but he wrote a little kind of as a TV playwright in the seventies, and literally like you know the the entire island and this one as well over here would be. Would be watching this thing on Wednesday night. Um, wow. And they were really well resourced and all that, another kind of a golden age. We're, we're very elegiacal. Already this well, will read I'd, I'd like to give Potter. some
2: defence. Sorry. Sorry, no, no. I was just like, say, so I'd like to defend the present and the future because I feel very excited about uh, what's being written and what's being made at the moment, and I look mm. towards the future. That's one of the few things I feel excited about for the future. Uh, you know, other things less so, but cu- culture, I feel excited.
3: I about. agree. I mean, I, I think there's amazing stuff coming out in every in, in every form. The difficulty at the moment is there's so much amazing stuff True. in every form. It's trying to, it's trying to have time to keep up at what's going on i mean we have it a bit in books work, but our but our, our beloved musician friends you know there's so much incredible music been made all the time that's as good as anything ever made and they're really struggling because mm. you know you, you get paid you know a fraction of a penny for your your, your stream on spotify or, or, or whatever it is so it's mm-hmm. um and i was reading anyone ever see the wire magazine the kind of mm. avant-garde music magazine and they were saying like it's, it's almost like Music is becoming a kind of a an amateur pastime for so many people. So many few people make make a living out of it, that it's kind of this kind of amateur pursuit almost. a strange strange time in that that regard.
0: It's I would like highly a, recommend um... everyone listening to listen to Radio Three's uh, Late Junction because that's a place where and you're right it's such an one of the things that I really missed in in lockdown was what I love about going to all the music festivals is you see all the bands that never played on the radio but Mm. built up you know and and I haven't had that this you know in the last year and that bit where you're right that there is such a and and it always it depresses me when I'm around someone's house and they're listening to the radio and I go it's the same I think Ten or fifteen years ago, on the average radio station, you had eighty individual songs being played a month. So you have whole, all those hours, mm-hmm. and all you get is eighty. And some of those songs will only be played once, so it won't even be noticed. Um, and and that to me is such a sad thing. Where you go right, there's loads of music. Where we were talking before, in fact, off air, I think, so I can mention this. A friend of mine, Jeff Lloyd, uh, who's a, a, a or was was a DJ, and he at the radio station he worked at once said, "Look." can I just have one show where I play music love my favourite bands? And after a lot of... Because he, his show was very popular, they said, OK, you can have one show. And uh, he played just all his favourite bits of music. And my God, the emails coming in and the messages coming in, people were so excited to hear these things. And uh, he takes them up to the bosses and said look how many people loved that? just different music. And they went, yeah, but they're not our listeners. And I think that's Gosh, an incredible yes. battle that you have. And you perhaps don't see so much with some of the streaming services, but in the mainstream, the, the traditional previous worlds of broadcasting, yeah. I think are increasingly maybe even two steps behind. Yeah. Uh that, what, that whole
3: uh, FM radio kind of world still still exists, doesn't it, with the mid-Atlantic kind of uh, jock kind of a voice. And all that. I, I I have discovered kind of um in lockdown kind of internet radio, you know, there's great stuff like NTS. Um, oh, yeah, NTS uh, is great. Fab- fabulous shows all the time from all over the world. And just, you know, there'll be someone on playing like Japanese metal for, for, for like an hour. And then there'll be some guy in Belgrade with the kind of local hip hop. But it's just amazing to hear, to hear all this really kind of vibrant uh, things coming from all over. Oh,
2: I got what's really the excited? station,
0: Josie? The, what do you call it? Uh, when Stuart. I found... Oh, Stuart, oh resonance. That, resonance. Yeah, yeah. Do you ever Boy. listen to Resonance FM?
3: Resonance FM. Yeah. yeah, is that what it's called? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Great Because that, that right.
0: just that bit where it goes from welcome to the Southern Old People's Radio Show, in which a group of elderly people Pensioner's talk voice. About, that's it. Yeah, yeah, they talk about the pen- pensioners' issues in in the, and and then, as you said, you suddenly get you know so many different forms of metal and then someone going uh hello i found all these uh old records from 1931 and they were all people who were stars of the music hall that month and you've just got and so you're going there's and i think people can handle that i think if you yeah, give that people go oh my god we heard someone singing with a bad gar in 1931 yeah. and then we heard something the, the strangest tokyo death metal that i've ever heard yeah i i i i,
3: I love the kind of gone through the vaults of kind of pirate radio as well old pirate stations which is another great internet hole for, for them. Like from the like, when I lived in London in the early 90s, kind of, when Kids FM, I think, was still a pirate station. And, and, and oh. that's a big shout going out to Dory <laughs> <and> stuff, <laughs> you know. But it, when I grew up in Limerick in the early 80s, there was a, a show, a station called, a pirate called Radio Limney, and it was one guy who would do like 14-hour long shows. He was wow. like the original podcaster. <laughs> so his name was John the Man okay <laughs> he, he, his studio had a velox window and he would stand up and put his head out and would literally come back and report what was going on uh, around town and the whole city would listen you know and it, and it was like he would like he would like draw the city into existence every morning oh. as we were waited to go to school you know it was, it was phenomenal what happened to it what happened to him yeah, that they knew the, the legislation from kind of mid 80s, they got much bigger fines and, and stuff like that. So it kind of the, all died out. Um, they used to just raid their studios and take the equipment, but then they started hitting them with it, like a fine of a grand and stuff. So so that was the end of it. Um, and it was just kind of, you know, commercial radio was yeah.
2: complaining. Ugh, well, that's so where
0: so. The, a lot of that. Private you know, the 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 giving out licenses to people who would just buy up so all local radio stations were yeah, it, it
3: just a money a money scheme, wasn't it? Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: I think that is a yeah. really that that is a sad loss. Certainly in 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 the UK that the you know it's harder and harder for people to actually have local radio radio where they really yeah, go oh, like you know where John the man is looking out the window. Yeah,
3: and... without getting too kind of legal, legal gentlemen about local stuff, but but I, I I used to like like my first job was on a local uh, newspaper, and I loved the world of, of like local newspapers in Ireland in the, in the like eighties and nineties. But even gone further back, there was a fabulous one in County Cork. Uh, called the Skibbereen Eagle, um, and the guy there—this was like sixties, I guess, fifties and sixties—he was um, this old-style Irish Catholic dude who was uh, obsessed with communism and obsessed with keeping <laughs> keeping communism out of <laughs> Ireland. And there was fuck God. all communism in Ireland. But um, the Skibbereen Eagles' masthead slogan was "Keeping an Eye on Russia." This BDI down in County Cork was just watching the whole situation, and he was our kind of our our canary in that coal mine. You know. Wow.
2: God, I want to talk more about your book, and I'd like to talk more about what you love to read as well, if that's okay. okay. I I I didn't appreciate that you live uh, so near to where so much of the book is set, and uh, that makes sense to me. Like, do you feel really like it's a big it's a choice for you to be writing about where you are, or is it just yeah. that's where you are, that's what you're well, it, like
3: It's weird, Josie. I mean, you make these kind of decisions in your life that seem to be pragmatic and nothing about your, your creative work, and, of course, they turn out to completely dictate yeah. your, your creative work. So I moved here uh, with Olivia, my, my, my wife, in 2007, uh, simply because we we just come back from the UK, and um, mm. it was Celtic Tiger time. And the only place we could afford to buy a house was a swamp <laughs> in like County Sligo. Um but if it, like if you're in the practice of of writing short stories all the time, they follow you around in the world. But it's like lag. You're often writing about stuff from five or six years ago in your own life or, or, or surroundings. But but most of the stories now I write who said around here, the interior northwest. I call it the tri-state zone. Three counties <laughs> run into each other. And it's it's a strange little kind of uh Twin Peaks, the atmosphere about it. I remember the first, one of the first days we moved here in County Sligo, going to the nearest town. Our, our metropolis is called Boyle in County Roscommon. About 3,000 people. Well, we picked up the we were in a coffee shop there, picked up the local newspaper, which was called the Roscommon People. And uh, I was just looking through the kind of local notices that it was like badminton club, sort of, uh, you know, the, 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 the hockey club. And then there was a UFO society. Uh, sure, very uh, normal, Thursday, yeah. Thursday night in the Bridge Hotel as usual I don't know what, <laughs> fucking what the UFO society and it turns out that Lock Arrow which is the lake across the road for me uh, as I point in this direction um, had the highest incidence of UFO sightings in Europe um, wow. at, at that time uh, she has since died <laughs> <Lady> <laughs> they all came from like the same lady essentially she, she was constantly reporting wherever you report and stuff to go yeah yeah we had two last night <laughs> over the lake you know so it's, um, but I, I love that level of kind of pure existential belief you know that, that yeah. they're up there and and, and, and she was watching the skies but yeah it's, it's um, like Ireland for anyone who, who who who's visiting I always say like get off get off the coast Uh, get off the coast road and go into the middle because it gets even even stranger and funnier uh, when you you get away from the coast, which is kind of built for kind of tourism market and stuff.
2: Yeah, because I feel like in this collection especially, there's like, there's magic in the air, but it's not always in the stories. So it's quite, um, it's like, it's not like you're saying these stories are... Stories in a magical world where magical things can happen yeah. and where the supernatural exists, but at the same time it just does sometimes, but not all the time.
3: Yeah, like I see I it's kind of at the edges of the scene a bit. There's there's the sense that, um, like someone someone has mentioned to me that I think in there's eleven stories in the book. I think in nine of them, the white thorn blossom. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <It's just everywhere, laughs> all over it. And but like again, I'm, I'm looking out behind, and it's it's this feels that go over to the lake. And the only trees standing in the fields are white-thorn trees uh, because uh, the farmers won't cut them uh, because of superstitions about white-thorn. But, yeah, I was and it's, say. It's, it's like, it's what folklorists call half belief. It's mm-hmm. not that they necessarily think there are fairies dancing around them in the pale moonlight, but it's, we're not going to risk it, <laughs> you yeah. know? That's just the case. And that still kind of persists in Ireland, and, and, and you know, not, not, not an entirely kind of uh, rational people. In, in, in lots of ways, and, 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 I, and I like that sense. Of, like the old country music of the title doesn't really refer to music as such, but that kind of atmosphere, that kind of strange kind of spookiness
0: that's still around, around the edges of the place. Well, there is in some of the stories as well that kind of idea of, is this synchronicity? Is this, or is it just the pattern? Because of the framing of it, we can find that pattern, and that pattern then can be quite disturbing or uncanny, Mm. if 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 you look for it so so some people go oh well, that's jungian synchronicity that that whole you know the way that those people met back or whatever it might be but yeah. I, I, that's what i find fascinating about it. a short story allows you to be in that kind of that hinterland uh, yeah. between well actually if if you really look at this if you do yeah. this in a cold dirt dissection yeah you know, all of these things are possible i've done the equations mm. but if you once you frame it in a story that's where you the 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 uncanny yeah,
3: I, th- I think my, my, my stories often start for the first um, page or two and looking like pretty much straight-up realism, um, yeah. but tend to kind of tiptoe away from that a little bit. Like where I like to work um, is out on kind of the very edge of believability, out, out on the cusp of believability, because it's a very dangerous place to operate but also a very interesting place if it works out you can very easily tiptoe over over the edge of the cliff and break your neck but it's um it's interesting to just just where you're kind of stretching the reader's belief just to, uh, as much as you can go uh, and the reader's going oh come on you know i'll really <laughs> go with this and 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 how far can you can you bring it out there but i i, I do love um short stories as a form i think for for the reader uh, a good short story is a really intense reading experience you know um they're really hard they're really hard to write i remember back in my um I was, like i was a freelance journalist all through my kind of 20s and i would do kind of stuff interview writers and stuff i remember i think for the irish times interviewing the great scottish uh story writer and, and, and novelist james kelman oh and cool he said, i'd ask i kind of in that sneaky kind of uh want to be right away trying to find out how do you, how do you write short stories, you know? <laughs> um, and he said something to me, which turns out to be horribly true. He said, it's it's not easier that they get, you know, and almost the longer you're doing them, the more mysterious they are to you, why some, some work out and, and most don't, you know, I, I probably write about six or seven stories a year and only one or two of them will ever be allowed outside the house. You know, I, I know that, you know, this one isn't great or I've done this before. Uh, so wow. so I have quite a lot a low a low strike rate with them, but it's um I That's have a kind of a superstitious to yeah. have to
2: leave them behind and be like v-
3: I don't know it's I guess it's a cliche but you learn you you do learn from the failures you know um, and I have a kind of a superstitious thing that if you if you finish all the bad ones you kind of earn the good ones in some kind of karmic way hmm. you know
0: um, so you do finish most of them do you or do, I do, do, you do? yeah I,
3: I I I I I don't know where I heard it early on when I was trying to write. In a, in a kind of a determined, dedicated way, coming across some 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 writers saying, "Finish everything you start," because um, because starting is easy, you know. There, there there's always these ideas, and you start with this kind of vaulting level of ambition for the story, and it rarely reaches that. But it's um, I don't know. I, I did see Hilary Mantel saying, "Um, who you'd listen to?" You know, in terms of fiction writing, <laughs> uh, I heard her say, "You know, it's 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 a weird and spooky business, and that it seems to give you." A, just enough just often enough to go back for, for for more punishment and that's that rings true for me like i i'm pretty dedicated now and when i'm here at home as, as i am all the time at the moment i I'll go <laughs> to my to my shed seven mornings a week and it, it probably seems to be going well one morning a week you know most days it doesn't seem to be getting very far and it, it seems sludgy and slow but but so you it's have, just yeah. Little crumbs like maybe maybe one maybe once a week for a half an hour you get that sort of um, sensation of the hand being guided across the page you know where where there's a sense of effortlessness and flow to it um and and, and those days are worth an enormous amount and those keep you coming back uh, for more I, I have a lot of what I call not nothing days where I look down after four hours in there and go oh, well it's not nothing you know and you do that yeah. for four years <laughs> and you get you get a, you get a book i hope i making it sound as miserable
0: it <laughs> sounds possible. nothing but glamour but i was does anything do you ever have that that fully formed thing because i think that's why I've, I've only written a few short stories and most of them are terrible um but that bit where i think because of the, the way that my mind works and it needs like you know typical comic i need it to have an immediate reaction yeah. is it either comes out and i find this with poetry as well it either comes out almost fully formed or i might as well just chuck it away do, do you so, which is why I write very rarely? Well, uh, but yeah. do you ever have a like you, does a story ever almost come in, in in a completeness where you can just go, Oh my god, it's there, as you said, that the guided hand, or once, is it
3: once? Yeah, one, once or twice I can think of where a story has felt kind of like a, a gift, but very rarely. Um, the, the last story in in uh, this book is called Retka in the Boghouse about the American poet Theodore Retka about having, he had a breakdown on an island off the west coast of Ireland in in, in 1960. And that came about like that almost where I got it all in like a couple of days. Uh, You know, first draft, it was all down. Um, And it it was actually because of of, of something that's... desperately rare in a short story writer's life which is a deadline you know <laughs> it's it, it there's very rarely like the phone hopping where's your short story kind of a thing <laughs> but i actually had promised one to, to the irish um times for for a summer series of stories and i said oh yeah i'll have a few tuesday and this was friday and I, and I was out on that island and there was a little plaque in the pub out there saying essentially Theodore retka had a, had a crack up in, in 1960 I, I'd heard of the story uh, there's a memoir by an Irish poet called Richard Murphy called The Cake and he wrote about um, he invited uh, Retka and his wife Beatrice out there and and apparently like, as a, like he's a fabulous poet but uh, as, a, as a human being he was like a car crash you know and he just caused havoc on the island for three weeks he was like you know drinking and getting into fights and chasing women and out all night around the place so, and a they actually called a meeting in the community hall and said we have to get this guy off the island <laughs> it's a tidy island so so he was committed to, to the asylum at, at bound' law he was committed very many times in his life um and I just thought I'll try get it I'll try get a, a voice for him I'll try I'll try get a language for him I'll risk it and it was just there when I tried it and it's one of my favorite pieces in the book because because there was ease to it that sense of effortlessness to it and I was looking for a kind of a a language similar to in his poetry which has a lovely kind of mid century kind of glamour to the to lines um and, uh, was there but that that's extremely rare uh, to get a story kind of presented to you with with a, with
0: a bow and a wrapper on it you know that deadline thing that's really interesting because the 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 importance of a deadline, it's an odd thing about creativity, isn't it? Because you'd lo- we'd like to imagine, I just like creating, but I think back to the 50s, you know, where you have all those people who wrote for astounding stories mm. and you have, you know, someone that, you know, the most obvious example would be someone like Philip K. Dick or even mm. Vonnegut in those, or just L. Ron Hubbard with his great big roll of paper, <laughs> tippity-tap, tippity-tap. And, and it is that, uh, you know, we get paid a, a very small amount for each story. If you manage to get 12 stories published in two months, then you can go and buy your bottle of whiskey. And how much that, you know, here is the deadline plays in terms of a brain saying... I
3: I, I impose mock deadlines on myself all the time just to try and, you know, crack, crack, crack the whip a little bit. Um, Yeah, and I guess as well, because I came from um, a journalistic background, writing features and reviews and all that, um, it's kind of a great background in a way for a fiction writer because it takes all the preciousness out of it. You know you don't have to sit around lying around lounging waiting for inspiration that you can always write you know you can always get something down no matter what sort of a uh, mood or condition you're in you can all you can always kind of uh, get get words down on the page so it's it's um yeah i more of it more deadlines would be would be very welcome around here
2: that's always an exciting thing to learn i remember when i was younger thinking oh i can only write at three in the morning that's yeah. all that's the only time i can do it and then being like oh no that was just when i would concentrate yeah. Like I can only write if I'm concentrating. That's that's the truth. It's it. it's
3: very 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 similar for me. In, like in my twenties, when I started writing stories, it would typically be at four in the morning. Have having yeah. crawled home from a nightclub <laughs> in Cork on, on on all fours, and <laughs> genius sentences would would go down, and and it would seem fantastic at four m. But you'd look back over it, like saying, "Oh Jesus, you know, more more of that." And I think a lot of writers become morning writers as 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 as, as, as you go on and you get more serious. I saw Don DeLillo has, has has he put it beautifully. He said the first thing in the morning is the time to write because you're still puddled in dream melt.
2: Oh okay? wow! Um,
3: and like writing fiction, <laughs> writing, writing prose fiction, um, the only thing it's close to in life is dreaming. It comes from the same place, from the subconscious, um, you know. And when you think about it, like when we dream, we're all brilliant storytellers. Huh. You know, these scenes just present themselves with amazing dialogue and this strange narrative dream logic, and then we wake up and oh, we can't do it. Um, so, so for me, my, my, my method is very much in the morning is to, is to get to the desk before I'm properly woken up when I'm still in that melty, dreamy kind of state. I don't go online. That's my big thing. I can't go online first thing. I leave that for a while and I don't even drink coffee. I drink weak tea, but I don't want wow. to too quickly. Um, and just for a half an hour, just literally spew onto the page. Often longhand, just anything. Don't worry too much what's coming out and just put something down and then I'll go and have my kind of porridge and my coffee and wake up and go back out and look at what I've spewed down for, for half an hour. And there's always one or two sentences in there, which are unexpected and which are bringing the story in a, in a surprising direction or something, you know? Wow. Um, and and I kind of caught most of the gibberish that went down. There's always a couple of sentences to play with. And I could play those like in the morning.
2: It's like having access to a different person for a it little is.
3: bit. Yeah, it really is. And, and you're a very different person. Uh, it, at different times, like I tried, it, it's weird. I have a lot of uh, friends who are visual artists, mm-hmm. and I, I've noticed compared to writers, they're much more prepared to to look at their practice and the way they work and to mix it up a bit, and to change it around. Um, when it, when I was writing my last novel, uh, Nightboat to Tangier, um, I I, uh, I was I was kind of enjoying it, but I was so kind of head up with it. I was sleeping really badly like I've insomnia bouts anyway at the best times, but I'm literally like not sleeping at all, almost, you know, like an hour or two a night. And it was around the time there was all these reports going up in the Guardian and places going, we've worked it out. You need to like sleep eight and a half hours a night or you're dead by next Tuesday. (laughs) Thanks mate. Yeah, (laughs) thanks for that. So, um, so I decided, you know what, I'm not, I'm not, these characters are in my head so much that they're annoying me. I'm not sleeping. So I'm going to change my whole system. I'm going to work at night. Um, so, so. Olivia would go to bed with her book at eleven o'clock, and I would sort of stay in the uh, stay in this room because it has a better fire. Um, mm-hmm. And I would I, I wrote it until like four or five in the morning, um, and it gave a completely different atmosphere to the story than I was expecting. It gave it a more sombre and a nocturnal kind of atmosphere. So it's it's really interesting experiment for anyone writing or, or creating anything to, to to mix it on in terms of time 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 of the day you do it, you know. But, That's but, so interesting. Yeah, but for, for, for me on an ongoing basis, the, that first first hour in the morning is kind of the critical time. If, if I don't get something, then I'm probably not going to get something later in the day, you know.
0: Yeah, but it's an interesting thing that... Uh, um, I was just again thinking the visual imagination, which is... Um, when I was reading your stories and I, and every now and again, I I would stop and I would and it might be because I was thinking about this new idea about visual imagination that there is, there's pictures in my head all the time, but I'm not actually seeing them like that. You know, that way that when you're reading and you suddenly realize if you stop, you go, Oh yeah, now I'm in that coffee bar. And now that person is coming over to the table, but I can't, it, it is almost like that dream world. When you really yeah. focus on your dream that you had, you go, I don't actually remember what their face was like. And I, and, and it, I, there was a, it was basically blurred everywhere else there was certain periods of it and that's what I found a lot reading your stories which I, I, I really focused on the fact that oh yeah, I've just realized where I've walked into and now I've yeah. just seen the door and now I've just seen the 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 you know the dirty cup yeah. and all that and and it's an inch I don't know sorry this was just rambling the, nonsense
3: the, the, but the fun the fun for me actually in in writing the story is is the editing it's cutting. That's what I enjoy. Um, huh. I, I hate first drafts. First drafts of anything, you know. And What, what you learn, like this is book six uh, over the course of a writing periods, First drafts never improved. They always look like raw sewage on the page. <laughs> it was just terrible. Shit that never gets any better. But it's just a case of, of, of like write long and then cut, you know. And, and you find the shapes and it. it's probably quite a cliched analogy. But the, the sculptor needs her block of stone, you know, that the... the force you can start chipping away and finding the kind of stories and shapes um, that are in there. Um, so, I, I, I have a weird thing where I, I generally know how long a story is going to be when I have the idea for it. I'm thinking, okay, this is going to be like three, three and a half, four thousand words, but I write nine thousand wow. to, to get that three and a half or four, just to cut and cut and cut, um, and 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 see what see see what's left at the end of it. And it's also like it's like taking away scaffolding. You know, is, is it still standing up uh, on, on the desk if I take this bit away, if I take this bit away? And I'm very interested in taking away a lot of the traditional kind of scenery and furniture of a short story where like, I don't need the, the staircase <laughs> described here, you know? You know, yeah. she, she's just here now, sort of thing. So it's, it's what what can you take away? And it's, it's the little machine that your story is is still, is still working, so it's still up on its feet.
2: And it's quite exciting when you realise you can take away, yeah. like, I, I, I was writing something where somebody was explaining something that I thought was really really crucial and then I basically just cut all of it and was like she wasn't really listening and then when by the time she started listening this isn't what right but like basically the woman wasn't listening and by the time she started listening she realized she'd missed it and I was like oh yeah but people know what he was saying and they get it and it's fine and it's better that way around because that's what's happening and it was such a like oh didn't even need to put the exposition in if and and, and but
3: one. what's what's kind of beautiful sometimes when you do cut is that it's the stuff you've cut is still in the story. Yes, that's it. Submerged, you know, yeah. just under the surface, and and that, those are the good ones I think when, when that happens. But uh, and like a lot of a lot of the sort of classic hoary kind of cliched bits of writing advice you hear are kind of nonsense, like kill your darlings. So I, I'm really interested in the writers who can keep all their darlings on the page, <laughs> you know. Um, but it, there are interesting things to look out for, I think, when you're look, reading back over over your own work. I always look for shame. I always, um, when you feel really embarrassed about something you write, pay close attention. That's the good stuff, you know. Huh. And, and when you're a younger writer or an emerging kind of writer, often you read back over a story you've written and you get to those bits that make you clutch your head and shame and despair and immediately cut it and, and really you should cut everything else just keep the bits that really embarrass you on the page because that's when you're you're getting at your real kind of material and, and, yeah. and your real fundamental uh, stuff. And you're just developing a thick enough skin all the time as a writer, I think, to really go into it, you know, to really kind of circle around your, your, your real fundamental concerns and themes and, and stuff like that.
0: Do you find when you go back to some of the early, because I, I know we've spoken to other writers who, you know, they'll go back to something they wrote 15 years ago and they'll go, oh, now I know why I wrote this, you know, because <sighs> of something that was going on in their life or some instant and, and that it was not plainly apparent to them then. Yeah. But now they can look and they can go, this story represents that, what was happening in, yeah. in my life.
3: Yeah, it, 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 it's often kind of um, news to you, you know, uh, what, what a story is really about, or something like that. I've had it often doing readings a couple of years after writing the story. go, oh, Jesus, this is about, you know, whatever. I've had that strongly with a story called uh, Fjord of Killary, which is in the last book of stories as well, which is about like the end of the world. It's a very loud operatic story about the end of the world in the west of Ireland as with a rising sea as, as perceived from a hotel bar and at, at oh, they're yeah. oh, it's getting high lads the water is getting high you know but it's yeah. I'm reading that story a year or two later somewhere at some festival I realised this is just about hitting 40 this is just about <laughs> getting to age 40 and I turned 40 I think like the week before writing the story or something you know it's all about sort of Accepted the fact that you only have so much control over over your life. Something we've all realized very vividly in, in the last in the last twelve months or so. But yeah, it's 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 often kind of both news to you and an amazement to you what what your what your own work is 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 about. You know.
2: Yeah, and when you find that you've linked things thematically without fully appreciating it, and looking back and being like, "Wow, this is some sort of ongoing concern for me that I thought was like a little motif or something."
3: Yeah, and and I think some writers um, um, are inclined to 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 circle the same stuff all the way through um, our, our, our writing career. I I love the notion to be able to to change with every book and do different things with every book. It's not going to happen, you know. You do have your fundamentals that you're going to to return to again and again. Um, there's one of those horrible little kind of apps that you can run a text through and it shows you your most prominently used words. Oh, God. And, you know, it's really embarrassing when you do it. I, I get things like haunted and, and <laughs> melancholy and all this. And I essentially consider myself a comic writer, you know. so, <laughs> so it's, it's strange that this <laughs> stuff comes <laughs> up all the time.
2: But I think there's lots of loneliness in in the right, Like the, this this book, there's lots of loneliness and like mm. desperation. Like I was really interested at there was, the start There was
3: a review and uh, it just came out in the US a few weeks ago. It's gone very well, but in one review it was described as broken-hearted people up in the hills, mm. which kind of covers it. Yeah. <laughs> no.
2: But it makes it so lovely when things do go right for them. Like, you know, is it the first story it yeah. it? with the woman in the coffin? Sorry, this is a my, spoiler. It's my, alert. Fir- it's
3: my first happy ending. I've been waiting for it. Was, yeah. <laughs> it was such a joy. wasn't it?
2: And that's not true. I think the one with the the girl who runs away. I feel like that's a happy ending. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, for sure. I'm yeah, just going to yeah, go through yeah. them all and be like that one's quite happy. <laughs> spoiler, one's alert,
0: <laughs> spoiler alert, spoiler alert,
3: spoiler <laughs> so,
2: alert. Yeah.
0: But, um, uh, it's um it, it's weird like
3: uh, I it was kind of 8 years since my last collection, so so when I was gathering them. It's a, it's a chunk of time, you know. and It's yeah. long enough to see yourself change as a writer. Um and when I was writing that first story, um wow which is like about a, a guy in the hills around here, <laughs> broken hearted, you know, fancies local uh, Polish girl who's working in the coffee shop he goes to and, and tries to ask her out. And it, his amazement, it all starts to seem to go quite well. Um, and as I was writing that story, I thought, oh, blood and walls. At the walls. At the end of this, isn't the only way it's going. And if I wrote it six or seven years ago, it would have ended with blood and the walls. But it astonished me when it seemed to kind of lurch towards what seems at least a be a happy ending um so it's kind of nice i i would have i would have reacted against that possibility i'm sure uh, relatively uh recently uh, but it's gross it's been a very different sort maybe <laughs>
2: <laughs> it's <something laughs> not six... to
3: say that i won't return to the blood and the walls endings yeah, yeah. for the next but
2: place. i think you know in this time it's like how they change the ending of get out in this time it needs maybe this is what's more necessary yes,
3: you know yeah, yeah it's 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 very weird and strange to think what this kind of um last period last year especially for the last couple of years will do to all our creative mm-hmm. work you know mm-hmm. um like even if you're not going to be writing stuff that's directly about the pandemic or anything like that it's going to color everything we write for the next while um it's as close as we've come in our generation to that kind of a, a wartime Experience and it's a very soft wartime, really. All we have to mm. do is sit on the couch and watch Netflix. You know, it's you're not been sent, you know, go out and fight them German lads kind yeah. of a thing. Like it's a very soft kind of a, a kind of kind of war to get through. But at the same time, it, it it is dramatic and it's absolutely going to kind of be a filter that all all our stories go and and routines and
0: songs and paintings go through. Uh, for for the next long while. Can I just, Great. before we end, i, I Are we haven't
2: asked you about what you like to
0: read. Well, I am just did. going to ask, yeah, which of, of short story writers when you were, and obviously you you mentioned, you know, James Kelman and people that you've interviewed, mm. were, were there certain names where you just, you you, you would look at a short story and you go, that, that is the way, that's the way.
3: Yeah. I, I guess a huge one for me was Flannery O'Connor. Um, uh, in, in kind of in the 90s when I was in my 20s and, and kind of reading stuff I, w- I was kind of obsessed with American books and American literature um and Flannery O'Connor's stories uh the, the fact it was so funny as well as having that gothical kind of um kind of strain and uh, which which felt very familiar to an Irish writer I think Irish writers have a lot in common with writers of the American South mm. um Especially in things like rendering the dialogue and stuff like that, it it, it can look as if you're overdoing it on the page <laughs> very easily. Uh, you face a lot of the same difficulties, in in sense, of Flannery O'Connor was one that absolutely uh, I, I would go back to. Um, you, you know, you'd have to mention reading um, around the same time reading Dubliners uh, by, by by James Joyce and gone. Fuck, he wrote The Dead when he was twenty-three. You know, this is just uh, absurd and outrageous and. You can tell that's a great book. I've read that book first in my kind of early mid twenties and thought, yeah, this is this is actually pretty good stuff. They're they're right. <laughs> but I, I, I then read it in like my late thirties, went, oh, oh, these stories really deepen when you come back to them at a different time. And have read them again in the last couple of years. Um, you go, wow, Jesus! I, I think that's that's the mark of a great book. It's it's when it, you go back to it at different times in in, of, in your life and it gives you it gives you new stuff. Well, time. again,
2: you're reading it as three very different people.
3: Exactly. Yeah. That that's opinion. one one of my theories. Actually, why you should write novels quick, like inside a year or more, is that if you spend longer, you're changing as a person, uh, and it's very hard to keep a consistency in, in 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 the tone. Very often with first books, people are five and six and seven years on them, and it's it's very hard to maintain any maintain any kind of consistency or evenness in 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 the tone, and they go all over the shop. Um, so so I, I think that's very true. You're, change, you're changing constantly. Like there's nothing mysterious about prose style for a writer. It's a very direct projection of your personality. And after about, I would say, 25 or 26 years of life have passed, there isn't much you can do about your personality. You're kind of stuck <laughs> with it. You have, you have to go with it. Um, yeah. And it, it shows up very vividly on the page. It all comes out when you're writing fiction. You can't hide and you can't lie when you're writing fiction. It
0: all comes out on the page. We better uh, end, the, the, but this year uh, that old Kevin, country music is out now. it was so great to meet you. I've on, read all your
2: stories and I'm such uh, a fan. And it's so exciting to have a new collection out. And like, yeah, thanks so much for talking to us. Uh, thanks, Georgie. Really
3: it was a treat to talk to you, Bill. You two, Robin, I really enjoyed us, guys. Thank so, you so yeah, old really country thank music,
0: Cannon Gate, now, um, and uh, we'll see you next week. Thank you. Brilliant. Thanks,
1: guys. That was great fun. Really thank enjoyed. you thanks very much for listening patreon.com slash where you can go to pledge your support for the show and get extended episodes and all the extra bonus series I mentioned at the top you can also go to Apple Podcasts rate and review five stars for the book shambles show that really helps us out as well we are back next week with another new episode with a guest who I cannot remember who it is which is becoming quite a trend really me Uh, not having the right page open in front of me to tell you who is up next week. But follow us on Twitter, at Cosmic Shambles, and you'll find out. Have a great week. Stay safe. Back soon. Bye.
0: This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network.
1: Josie Robbins' book
0: Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions.